Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. This evening's episode of Tom's Talmudish has been generously sponsored by Marla Kribus and Jake Hacker to commemorate the yard site of Marla, Marla's mother, Fredel Bas Reb Yosef, may her neshama have an aliyah, may she have pleasure on high from the Torah being studied here and around the world. And may we be able to share good times and simchas together. So as you're getting online, I'll get all my holy books open. And I think we have a fantastic class prepared for you tonight. Filled with very, very interesting and even uplifting information. You'll forgive me for a bit of a tardy start. Stuff happens, as they say. And I am really glad that you're joining. So let me open with this. We're coming very close to the end of the Talmud's expositions on the Megillah, on the Scroll of Esther. And there's an obvious question, kind of the elephant, the white elephant in the room that I think has to be addressed. This is the matter of fact. We're about to begin our 46th episode. Much of it, not all, but much of it, has been directly focused on the actual verses of the Megillah, clarifying, elucidating, probing beneath the surface to reveal deeper messages and ideas Fascinating, uplifting, and very insightful teachings. But the fact of the matter is, it doesn't cover the entirety of the Megillah. Our sages seem to be somewhat selective on the verses that they chose to expound. Now, there are Midrashim that expound on a much, much larger, almost, almost the entirety of the Megillah, and there is enormous amount of commentary by our sages, beginning in the medieval times all the way until the 20th century. 
the Rebbe himself explained and clarified an enormous amount of things in Megillat Esther. Many of these details, and they're all like obviously within the text when you analyze the seeming anomalies, grammatical inconsistencies, or sometimes things that just don't seem to make any sense. But the Gemara doesn't talk about every one of them. The Gemara is very selective. And, and I have to tell you that on the surface, much of what the Talmud chooses to talk about, it seems to be almost tangential. Not even the primary thrust of the story. Now, I said seems to be because clearly if that's what we're seeing, it's because we lack a vision. So I want to make a suggestion with regard to maybe the last couple of episodes, but especially with regard to the episode that we're going to focus on tonight, Showdown. Our sages zeroed in on the details of the story that broadcast a miracle. Our sages wanted to uncover the miraculous events, happenings, seeming coincidences, because the story of Purim, whilst viewed as miraculous, on the surface doesn't jump out at you as particularly supernatural or wondrous or extraordinary. It reads like a story, a very dramatic story. Great done for a, a movie or a play, but doesn't seem to be miraculous. A couple of episodes back, we focused on a Persian king who couldn't sleep one night. But as we delved into those verses, we began to peel away the layers and dust off the things that concealed the events that were positively miraculous. That, my dear friends, I think is the matrix to understanding the words of the Gemara. So put this on the back burner. We'll return to it on occasion over the course of the next hour. I'm fairly certain you'll agree with me that when we look at these teachings and we kind of piece them together, we see that one necessarily leads into the next and all of them lead us to a recognition of Hashem's miracles. So with no further ado, let us begin. Showdown. Haman is a narcissist, psychopath. He has no compassion, no compunction, condemning millions of people to mass murder. He's perfectly okay with the wholesale slaughter of children, women, and men. But like most narcissists and psychopaths, he feels his own pain. He's very sensitive 
about his own feelings. Haman the hater has just had the worst day of his life. We learned all about it over the last couple of episodes. And now he's received even worse news. His friends, who were evil yet wise, informed him that this was in all likelihood not an anomaly. His meteoric rise in Persian politics was probably over. This wasn't just a setback, but what he had experienced was the beginning of a huge downfall, one from which he would most likely never recover. Suppose you're Haman. What's the next thing you need to do? Well, you need to strategize. You need to figure out how to stop the bleeding, minimize the damage, and try and secure as much as power of political capital as you're able to. And that brings us right into showdown. So having received all of this awful news, and it's awful, all of a sudden, before he has a chance to think, he's told, if this Mordechai is Jewish, and we elaborated on that in the previous episode, this is the person, Asher Hachilota Linpulafanov, this is the person before whom you have begun to fall? Nafal Tipol. This is just the beginning. The Megillah tells us at the end of the sixth chapter, Odom Medabrim Imo. They're still in the middle of the conversation. They haven't even, so to speak, concluded talking. And in the midst of that, and here's where the, the, the Talmudic narrative picks itself up, Visarise Hamelach Higiu. The royal chamberlains have arrived. The chamberlains of the king, Sarisi Hamelach. Some might argue that these were eunuchs, certainly devoted to the king's service. You didn't mess with Sarisi Hamelach. And the Gemara quotes just these four words from the Pasuk. And the king's chamberlains, Higiu, came. They rushed. The Gemara stops right there. Now that's a word that has to be better understood. Says the Gemara, Daf Tezayin, Omad Aleph, page 16, side A. We're in the home stretch, bottom of the page, about the 10 or 15 lines from the bottom. Melamed says the Gemara, this teaches us, it broadcasts, it instructs, 
It informs. Shehevi'uhu, that they brought him bivehola, in a state of disorientation, confusion, or even fear. That's all the Gemara says. What exactly was the issue? <laughs> which part of Vayavilu, which literally means they, they rushed him. They said, Haman, hurry up. The king and queen are waiting. Which part of that is indicative of disorientation, confusion, fear? In fact, which part of that requires any kind of elucidation? The royal chamberlains arrived and they hurried Haman. Okay. Just by the way, that is the pshat. That is the simple meaning of the words. So, for example, if we are to take a look inside the Megillah itself and look, for example, at Rashi's commentary, he doesn't even say anything. There's no comment. All of Rashi's commentary is on chapter 7. In other words, not only there isn't an issue, there isn't anything that even needs elucidation. There are issues here in the verbiage, the syntax, even in the grammar. Not in these four words, though. The Talmud is mum on a number of things, important things, that both the Medrash and the commentary speak of. And yet, the Gemara says, uh-oh, vayavhilu, melamed, this teaches us this wasn't just any rush, this was a disorientation, a state of confusion. What? Why? I'm asking this question because the very fact that we can ask the question indicates we don't understand the Gemara. Gemara doesn't say just like silly things, chas The Gemara doesn't just say stuff. If the sages chose this verse, or should I say this portion of a verse to expound on, to point a finger and say, Vayavilu, there's a lesson, there's a message, then clearly there's something of tremendous importance. And thus begins our investigation. Our first stop will be at Rashi to see what Rashi says here in the Gemara. Rashi transcribes three words. Melamed, Sheheviuhu, this teaches us that they brought him in a rushed state. Very interestingly, 
Rashi doesn't say what Bivahala means. He says, He didn't get to wash himself properly. If you're joining for the first time, welcome. You should watch the last episode because this one comes on its heels. Previously, Haman got a shower of sewage. And then his daughter committed suicide after she did that because it was a classic case of mistaken identity. She thought she was going to be dousing Mordechai, the Jew, with sewage. But to her utter shock, dismay, and chagrin, it was her own father. So Haman is reeking. He had a chamber pot emptied on his head from a tall building. It hit him with great force. He must have felt horrible. Then he got the bad news that hey, this is not just a one-off. This represents the beginning of your end. He had to want a good bath. They don't have showers those days, but they had nice baths. And Haman was a very wealthy man. He couldn't even bathe. I mean, he must have cleaned himself off in a very basic way before he was speaking to his friends, but he probably still reeked of sewage. Rashi says that the meaning of sheheviu bevehola, that they brought him in a state of, well, Rashi doesn't explain what bevehola means. He doesn't tell us it means anything other than rushed. But he says the meaning is that he didn't get a chance to bathe. I'm like, I'm reading this Rashi. I'm saying, Jerusalem, help. What, 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 what does that mean? Why wouldn't Rashi explain the meaning of the word Bevehola? And pray tell, what difference does it make if Haman had a shower or not? So the next place I went was the Maharsha. The Maharsha says the following. Maharsha, this is in Chidushe Agodois, the Agaric novelty printed in the back of the Vilna Shas. Maharsha says, first of all, what is the issue? That is to say, when we analyze a verse, we, I mean the sages of the Talmud, when we use our Talmudic skills of analysis, there's got to be something that tips us off, something that isn't right. We say, hey, this word shouldn't be here. The grammar is inconsistent. There's something that makes us look, investigate, and discover a deeper message. What exactly caused us to look more deeply. What was the issue? So the Marshal says something quite fascinating. The Vipshuto. If we're to understand this on a literal level, by the way, I just want to mention that if anybody has any questions, you're welcome to post them 
in the chat on YouTube, and I will try to take a look. See if there's any questions here. So the fipshuto humiloshin maher just means hurry up. Not only is this verbiage not strange, it's actually found in the Megillah. It says, Vayibohil is Tamrukeha. He rushed. He rushed the cosmetics. So what are we talking about here? If we go back to if we go back to the story of Esther, Esther being brought into the palace against her will, of course. And these are all prima donnas, beauty queens. Each one thinks that she should be the next queen of Persia. And they're all under the tutelage of the king's eunuchs, specifically a guy named Haggai. And Haggai really takes a liking to Esther. You know, don't worry, he's castrated. The Achashverosh wasn't taking any chances, but he was, he was really taken by her personality. So he went out of his way to provide for her, to try to make her life easier. And in the beginning of the Megillah, chapter 2, verse 9, it says, he rushed, it was a rush order. He brought her whatever cosmetic treatments, whatever things she needed, he brought more quickly. So Marshall says, there's actually nothing unusual about this word. Which, of course, makes us ask the question, so what was the issue? Vayavilu, okay, vayavilu. They rushed him. Not only is the word not typical in Hebrew, Pardon me, not only is the word typical in Hebrew, but furthermore, it even appears in the Megillah itself. So, if I've been reading or studying the Megillah in order, I read chapter 2, now I'm at the end of chapter 6, I know exactly what this word means. So what's the issue? Ah. So Marsha says... The issue here, though, is whilst I know the word means hurry up, to do something in rushed fashion, the fact remains that when this kindred scene was being described in the Megillah, we used the more common word of Maher. What is the Marshal referring to? He refers to Ahasuerus's listening to Esther, accepting her request, and he said, Maharu es Haman, hurry up, call Haman quickly. Lasot et dvar Esther. So for the first meal or party, he used the word maharu. Now, the word being used is vayavhilu. So beholo and mehirut both mean rush to doing something fast. 
But the fact that we switch midair in the same syntax begs for an explanation. And so Marsha says, the chsiv word is written, so therefore, says Marshall, our sages understood that the reason that the Megillah uses this different word is because this time Haman wasn't simply being rushed, but rather he was disoriented and quite frankly terrified. Why? Where do you get that from? Kemoi es habehola. Because we, so the thing is this. If the word can mean hurry up or rush, and it does mean that, because that's what the Megillah says. But the fact that the Megillah uses a different kind of word makes me wonder. So I look elsewhere in the Bible where or in what other syntax, what other subtext, what other meaning could be attached to the word. And so, Marsha says, if we take a look at the end of the book of Leviticus, the parsha is called Bechukotai, and it contains within it some awful, terrible collection of verses called the Tochacha, the rebuke or the curses. And over there, we have a description of terrible calamities that befall people. And there's a whole slew of things that are going to happen, but it begins with Beholah, which is interpreted as fear or disorientation. Aha. So Mashah tells us that's what's going on here. Because Haman was suddenly being rushed, or the rush is described in different terminology, Clearly, there's an additional message that's being brought to us. So, was he rushed? Yes, he was rushed. There's no question about that. That is the simple meaning. Rashi doesn't comment. It's, that's, but our sages want you to know that this time when he was rushed, he was actually in a state of disorientation. So, why doesn't Rashi say that? He does. He does. Because... The Masha is reaching here. He's like reaching. He's saying, you know, Beholah means disorientation. So he was disoriented. Rashi is actually describing why was he disoriented. Why was he afraid? Nobody threatened him. He's still the prime minister. All right, he had a bad day. The fact that his daughter decided to douse him in sewage and then commit suicide has nothing to do with his political career. He's still a very powerful man. He had an assignment to carry out that was uh, distasteful, humiliating. <laughs> Still Haman. Oh, no, no, no. He was fearful. Fearful of what? So the first thing is, it's Bahola upachad. The fear is, is a secondary factor. The first thing is disorientation. Where do we see disorientation? Well, the, the, the rush induced disorientation. And Rashi tells us, we can see that from the fact that he was rushed to the point that he couldn't wash himself. And because he was rushed to the point, he wasn't on top of his game. 
So, do you remember what I said just a few moments ago about the miracle? We learned several episodes ago that Esther was brilliant. And she had many, many ideas, many reasons that she chose to make her request in the time and manner of her choosing. There was a whole, like a strategy behind this. She was going to do everything she could to weaken Haman's position, to make him as vulnerable as possible, including, incidentally, creating this imagery as if maybe she and Haman have something going, which Achashverosh, by the way, picked up on. And yet, in the end, despite Esther's exquisite and extraordinary plan, things work in a manner far more effective and beyond what she could have imagined. When we talked about Esther's strategy, the various ideas that she had, you know, the methodology, what was, what was she aiming or trying to accomplish? I shared with you insight into the concept of bitachon, of trust in Hashem. Esther demonstrates to us a beautiful, extraordinary paradigm of bitachon. She has purest trust in Hashem, but trust in Hashem, blissful reliance in God, doesn't mean that you are exempted from giving the circumstances your very best shot. You're required to do everything possible. Everything. And then, and then you know it's in Hashem's hands. Esther did everything she could to weaken Haman's position so that when she would finally make the request, she could hopefully succeed even if it meant losing her own life in the process. And yet, she never, in her wildest dreams, could have imagined how Haman would be weakened and so incapacitated. It was like a hot knife and butter. She never could have imagined it would go as well or easy as it did. Of course she couldn't have, because these were circumstances that are not only beyond Esther or anybody's control, this is clearly in the hands of Hashem, that Rabbeinu Shalom is orchestrating things. So Hashem orchestrates that the king can't sleep at night, and he convinces himself something's going on. It's got to be a plot. Why isn't anybody speaking? Ah, oh, there must have been a plot once, and whoever saved my life, wasn't rewarded. So it doesn't seem like it's worth being my friend. I'll make it worth it. And Haman, at the very same time, is planning to kill Mordechai. Had he waited one day more, he wouldn't need permission, but he couldn't wait one day more. And he steps right into the trap. And now Haman spent the whole day bathing, grooming, and leading Mordechai through the city of Shushan, the teeming streets, the city square. Then he got doused in sewage. Who could have planned this? Who could have imagined it? Now he shows up at the ball. How confident does he feel? Haman is a shrewd operator. This is a man who, who ate people. 
and asked for seconds. He's 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 an absolute monster. A cannibal. Ruthless psychopath. He's always got his wits about him. He steps over as many dead bodies as it takes. It's all about Haman. He shows up at this party, crushed, stinking like a toilet. He must have felt horrible to himself. This is this well-coiffed dude who loves to strut around like a peacock and be bowed down to. And he shows up stinking like a, like a toilet bowl. He probably was trying to like keep his distance from the king. He must have been so uncomfortable and fidgety. He said, let me, let me just wash myself. Nothing doing. <laughs> Imagine, this formerly powerful man is now forced to show up at the most important event of his life. The one his life is going to depend on. But he, of course, doesn't know that. And he shows up totally unprepared, filthy, and disoriented. No. Is this not a miracle? That's what our sages wanted us to know. Our sages wanted us to understand the depth of the miracle. How Hashem had arranged everything so perfectly. So when the time comes, Haman just goes down and Esther is unscathed. Now, I want to share with you an incredible idea. Incredible. This is from the great Rabbeinu Yoinesen Ebershitz, 17th century leader of Germanic Jewry. He wrote many svarim. One of them is called the Yaris Dvash. The Yaris Dvash is um, a collection of sermons. This is a sermon that has a, a Purim, the first section has 17 sermons. This is the 17th sermon. And, and it's got some phenomenal information on Purim, on the story of the Megillah. And specifically, I want to share with you his insight into what our sages expounded here. So now we understand this on a literal level. We understand what Rashi says. Marsha has kind of framed it, explained to us what our sages were looking for. Now we understand what the sages wanted to highlight. Let me put it simply. The sages did not teach pshat in the Megillah. They didn't say, we need to learn what is the meaning of the words of the Megillah. That's not what the Gemara is focused on. The Gemara is focused on expounding the Megillah. This is a homily, a drush, which comes from the word lidrosh, dorish, is like a detective. We're going to investigate and uncover the deeper meaning. The story beneath the veil or beneath the narrative. And that is with a purpose, a goal in mind, so that you and I understand what a miracle happened, what an amazing event this was. So the Bienes and Ebeshet says like this in Yaris Dvash. He says, our sages tell us, they brought him in a state of disorientation. He couldn't get off his filthy clothes. He came soiled, filthy and stinking. He 
Yaris Dvash says, like, really, what difference does it make? And if you put on another suit, you wore a different robe, come on. Why do we have to emphasize that he came as was? Wearing those clothes, not properly washed, thinking. So till now we heard about the stench of sewage at a physical level. Yarsdvash takes us into a different dimension. He says, you know, Esther is going to be witnessing a miracle now. You, you, you can't imagine how powerful Haman was. It was impossible to imagine. Three days after the king had given Haman his signet ring, empowering him to do as he pleased with millions of lives. Millions of citizens were simply handed over to Haman, who offered to pay, and the king said, it's fine. And, and now, the very same king who killed his first wife on the advice of Haman, who is called Memuchan in the beginning of the Megillah, is going to kill Haman by virtue of his Jewish wife. So to be innocent says, this is a tremendous miracle. And a miracle can be framed or termed Gilui Hashchina. It's a revelation of God's presence. When you see a miracle, you see God's presence. He said, there's a problem here. About 10 episodes ago, maybe 15 episodes ago, we talked about Esther arriving in the antechamber. And when Esther arrived, she suddenly felt the presence of God leave her. Why? As you may remember, or go back and watch, it was because this antechamber was filled with idols. And the iconography and the idols caused Esther to lose the presence of the Shekhinah. The Yadaz Dvash says, we see something similar with regard to Moshe Rabbeinu, Kasha Mertzinu Moshe. When the Pharaoh said to Moses, please, take these plagues away. Moses said, I can pray. When I leave the sea, I'll raise my hands in prayer. quoting the words of our sages that are found in Rashi in this commentary on the Chumash. Moshe Rabbeinu was uncomfortable praying to Hashem in a place of idolatry. And Esther had the same experience. And that's why she paraphrased the words of Psalm 22. Lama Azavtani, Keli, my God, Lama Azavtani, why have you abandoned me? Now, of course, Hashem returns to Esther. As our sages put it, Shochen itam bitoch tumatam. Hashem stays with us in the midst of profound impurity. However, Esther 
was disturbed. She said, how can I ask Achashverosh to save the Jewish people? Which on a deeper level means asking Hashem. A wicked anti-Semite like Achashverosh, as we learned previously, who will suddenly grant clemency to the Jewish people and instead rub out the prime minister with whom he plotted the genocide. This is a tremendous miracle. Who nest Godel? Ulazeh, Tzarich, Haoras Hashchina, that needs to radiate the presence of Hashem, the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, higher consciousness. But this higher consciousness can't achieve it. It's like sometimes you can't listen to the radio because something's interrupting the broadcast. It's like the, there's like a jammer in the air. This is a problem. This is precisely why Esther didn't want to make the request in Achashverosh's palace, which is full of idols. She said, come to my house. In Esther's house, there were no idols. Therefore, says the Aras Dvash, Esther brilliantly orchestrated and brought the king to her house. And come into her private sanctum. And there's <laughs> nothing, there's no, no idolatry there. The knuckle be Yesalasis Om nom, she had this beautiful plan. She couldn't bring herself to say anything at the first meal other than, please come back again. Why? But did she know that Achashverosh wasn't going to sleep at night and that the next day Haman was going to be leading Mordechai on a royal steed through the teeming streets of Shushan? Of course not. Do you remember? Many episodes ago, we talked about the Megillah's description of Mordechai's loyalty to Hashem that barred him from exhibiting any kind of subservience to Haman. He said, I bow only to God. To Haman, I will not kneel, I will not bow. Why? Because Haman, Haman wore clothing that were emblazoned with icons with idolatry. And when you bowed to the Haman man, you were actually bowing to his idols. He fancied himself as a paradigm of religious holiness or some kind of demigod. demigod. And in his demigod mind, when he was wearing these images of the idols and they were bowing to the idols and ultimately he was the bearer of this divinity. He was carrying these gods, so to speak. So Esther's sitting at the table, and there's an idol looking her in the face. And she's like, I didn't plan for this. I can't ask Hashem for a miracle. I don't have the higher consciousness when I'm sitting in front of an idol. So what does Hashem do? Hashem arranges that Haman should have to walk through the streets leading Mordechai. He wasn't wearing his fancy idol suit. He left his idol suit at home. He didn't want to shame his idols. He didn't want to shame his demigod status by wearing these clothes. He was wearing a hoodie. He 
You've got to be kidding. He wasn't wearing his finery. That's why his daughter didn't recognize him. Haman takes off his idolatrous mantle. Because of this, his daughter doesn't recognize him. And what happens? She douses him with sewage. Now he's thinking. He's going to change. Ah, Hashem arranges. V'sarisi ha-melech higiu. V'yavhilu. V'yavhilu, he says, he couldn't even change his clothes. So he shows up, not only physically stinking and disoriented, not able to think clearly, he's bereft of his idols. The Yarash Dvash doesn't talk about this, but I was thinking that maybe his idols gave him confidence. He didn't have his idolatrous shot in the arm, so to speak. And Esther now has a clear path. She has a bewildered, disoriented, Machiavellian politician who's not a Machiavellian now. <laughs> he can't even think straight. He doesn't have his source of comfort, and Esther's not staring an idol in the face. Ah, and this is the Yadis Dvash. This is the incredible miracle of Vayavhilu. They, they rushed him, taking off those clothes. And this, my dear friends, this is, this is Gvaldic. Now it's like, now it's like starting to make sense. Now this is really starting to shine. It gets better. The Chatam Sofer says something fascinating. If you were Haman, what's the smartest thing for you to do now? You just built a gallows to hang the king's best friend. The king's friend, who he wanted, led through the cities of the street, wearing a crown, royal robes, with you proclaiming, such is done for the king's friend, for the person the king wants to honor. And you have gallows right there in your yard, right in the middle of your compound, the Mordechai gallows. Haman would have been thinking he would have quickly have said, guys, get rid of the gallows. Doesn't look good for us. And in the end, that was his undoing. Because, as we'll find out in the next episode, when the time comes, Ahasuerus is told, you know, there's the gallows that he built. And Ahasuerus says, what? A gallows that he built to hang my loyal Mordechai? Hang him on it. Vayavhilu. Chatam Sofer says, another amazing element, a piece of the puzzle, a detail of the miracle. He didn't have time to take the gallows down. And finally, I found something fascinating. The Mamlois quotes the Geras HaPurim. He says that Haman wasn't even sure he was still invited to the party. He thought maybe he had fallen out of favor. So he wasn't really like his mind wasn't there. He was like nursing his wounds and trying to figure out what his next move is. And suddenly the royal chamberlains are there. We got to go. The king and the queen are waiting. So he's entirely disoriented. He doesn't know which way is up. And as such, he's rushed along like a commoner. Fully disoriented. Now, the miracle is ready to unfold. And that's actually the next step. 
This is, uh, this is, this is Gvaldic. It's great stuff because what, what, what it really does for us is it clarifies for us how Hashem in the end arranged everything so perfectly. Esther did her part, but then Hashem did his. It's almost like he delivered Haman on a silver platter. And that takes us right into chapter 7. Could Haman have repented? Shawneel is asking. Possibly. But he didn't. Should he have wanted to repent, the first thing he would have had to try to do is undo the genocide. He had just planned to kill millions of people. There's no indication he had any remorse or regret for the horrors he was about to unleash. So in chapter 7, the king shows up. Imagine being a, a fly on the wall, seeing Haman walk in and the king's nose wrinkles up. and says, boy, do you stink. And Haman's heart sinks. And they're there to drink. And Haman must have just wanted to drown his sorrows, which means he drank a lot of wine. It's exactly where he has to be now. Drunk, disoriented to begin with, desperate to escape his misery. So he's drunk, has no control of himself. It's beautiful. Everything is almost perfectly primed. So the king's in a good mood. He doesn't have uh, any sewage spilled on him. He was worried last night, but now he feels he's got it under control. If there's somebody who's plotting, he'll find out soon enough. And with an iron fist, he will strengthen his kingdom. But tonight, there's a party. He's going to drink, feel good about himself. And he does. And indeed, our sages tell us that Esther noticed that this was the right time. The right time. The commentaries point out that Achashverosh had a sneaking suspicion that Esther wanted to ask for some kind of favor for Mordechai. And he was feeling really smug because when Esther would say, we've got to do something for my, my, my friend Mordechai, and she was going to say, oh yeah, I, I, I got that car taken, car taken care of, covered. He's just been paraded through the streets. And so the king turns around to her and he's feeling really good about himself. And he says, uh, so what is it, Esther? What do you want? up to half the kingdom, and we talked about what exactly that means. So the Gemara says, at this point, zero hour has arrived. As they say, the penny has just dropped. Esther can't delay anymore. But she couldn't have asked for a better circumstance, a better situation. 
So the Gemara says at this point, the king turned around and said, yes. And Esther responded. And the Gemara picks up the analysis with Esther's response. Masha Elosech said the king, what do you want? And I'll give you whatever you want. Vatan Esther, and Esther answers. And she says, if only I have found favor in the king's eyes. I don't ask you for much. Just, just spare my life. Just, just give me my family. I just want to stay alive, that's all. And she explains. Kinimkarnu. Because we have been sold. Aniva Ami. My nation and I have been sold. The, the, the Gemara doesn't quote Gemara, the rest of the words, Vigoymer, etc. In the Megillah, the rest of the words are sold into mass murder, into genocide. Lahashmid, Lahareg, or Laabed, to be annihilated, killed, and destroyed. We've been sold to the butcher shop. And Esther went on after that and said, So if we were sold into servitude, Avodim and Shvaches, Nimkarno, okay, I would be quiet. I would have kept my peace. What does this mean? There's a lot of things that have to be explained as to what it means. What here that these words mean? I've got to tell you, these are some of the most difficult words to understand in the entire Megillah because a tsar usually means the pain. But here it means the prosecutor, or the one who's bringing the pain. The word shoveh usually means value. Nezek hamelech, the damages of the king. The pain doesn't equal the damages? Like, like, what does this mean? So I have to tell you, by, by the way, I did, I did leave one little detail out. The Marsha adds one more detail before Esther says these words. She says, just to add to the disorientation, at this point, Haman started to think Esther might not be his friend. Esther's up to something. I mean, he knew that there was a relationship with Mordechai, and he just spent the day parading Mordechai around. He said, uh-oh, I think Esther is out to get me. And as such, his disorientation is like just unbelievable. He's positively terrified. And he's watching this unfold. The king says, what do you want? And Esther says, to stay alive. Because ein hatzor shayva b'nezek ha-melech. This is a full frontal attack. It's a full frontal attack on Haman. What happened here? What precisely was, if you will, being said here? Well, Achashverosh and Haman are sitting at the table. He asks a request. He says, you just tell me 
and, and his or her response is that the adversary, the enemy, who orchestrated all this, is not even concerned with the damage he does to you. What does she mean? You know, if you look in the actual, if you look in the actual Megillah, like in the text, Rashi says, the meaning of Ein Hatzar Shoiva is Einenu Choyshesh Benezek HaMelech. This enemy, this adversary, this, this bad guy, he doesn't value. The word Shava means value. He doesn't value. He's not concerned with me. He doesn't have value to him. The damages that this will cause to the king, he doesn't care about the king. In other words, you think this guy is loyal to you. He's not loyal to you. He could care less about your welfare. It's all about him. You're just a pawn. And he'll sacrifice you in a moment. What's Esther doing? She's undermining the king's confidence in Haman, but she didn't name him yet. So that when the king finally discovers who she's talking about, the powers of suggestion that she's planted in his mind are, he doesn't care about you. He'll sell you down the river as quickly as he sold me down the river. She has to undo years of friendship and undying loyalty between these two men who just a few days ago together hatched a plot to murder all the Jews in the world. So what does this mean, says the Gemara? Why, why was Esther trying to emphasize that? And the Gemara feels that this is very important. This is, there's a key element here that has to be better understood. Omra. The Gemara says, she said, Tsar zeh this adversary, this enemy, this person who has brought the horrors, the sorrow, the pressures to bear, he doesn't care about the loss of the king. He became jealous of Vashti, and because he became jealous of Vashti, he had her killed. Of course, who advised the king to kill Vashti? Mamuchan. Mamuchan is. Mamuchan is Haman. Hashto ikni bididi. Now he's jealous of me. Umi boilem miktali. This is about killing me. Esther just took the spotlight off the Jewish people and put it on her, which ultimately puts it on the king. She said, This man wants to kill me. And he's such a psychopath that in order to orchestrate my murder, he's orchestrated the murder of millions of people just to harm me. Even though you, Ahasuerush, is the biggest loser. Now, I have to tell you, like, when I, was, when I was learning this Gemara, the one thing that bothered me is Esther has just described Haman to the T. And yet, 
as we read it in the next piece of Gemara, Vayomer HaMelech HaChashverosh, Vayomer LaEstha Malka. Now, the Gemara finds it important to understand the redundancy in the Vayomer, Vayomer, but what does he say? He says, What? Mihuzeh! Vayezehu! Who is this horrible guy? You know who he's talking about. She's talking about. She's talking about Haman. What kind of question is that? Who is this terrible guy? You know exactly who this terrible guy is. So the Maharsha says something very interesting. It's, the the Manus Halevi s- speaks in a similar voice. He says, I mean, you, fi- you find both the Manus Halevi as well as the, the Maharsha spell this out. The Manus Halevi says, He has nothing to fight with the Jewish people for. What's he got with the Jews? It's nothing about the Jews. All the things that he's been saying about the Jews is only because he hates me. It's all about getting me out of the way, robbing you of your next wife. He forced you to kill your first queen, and now he wants you to kill me. Marsha puts it this way. Marsha says, There could be no greater damage. That actually is a personal frontal attack on the king. Because in the words of our sages, his wife is like his own person. So, it's an attack on me. By extension, it's an attack on you. King Achashverosh. So this doesn't say anywhere, and I, I could be wrong, but it seems to me, it seems to me, and I don't know this with certainty, but it seems to me that Esther alluded to these things. She didn't actually spell it out clearly because Esther doesn't know how the king's going to respond. So she's kind of setting up her arguments. Again, going back to the Betochen lesson, here's a woman who believes in Hashem and trusts in Hashem and places everything in Hashem's hands and yet she's doing her best because that's what you're supposed to do. She has to frame this in the strongest way possible. So she does that. She says words which lay the foundation for the attack that she will subsequently develop. But as you'll see, once again, her well-laid plans don't need to come to fruition because Hashem takes care of things in a much more stunning way. And that brings us into the next piece of the Gemara. The Gemara says, Achashverosh responded, What? Who? So dramatic. And all of a sudden, the Megillah is like taking its time. So Achashverosh said, And he said to Esther, well, who did he speak to the first time? He said it and he said it. His, this is like a, a, a head-popping moment. This is like an explosive piece of information. And he's like, so, so who did this? So what do you think? So, so, so this is a problem? You get to the point, man. <laughs> this isn't the, the time in the script 
when you speak circuitously. Use the southern drawl to, you know, come on, so uh, who might have said something like this? He's like, Musevezu! <laughs> the, the whole opening is actually superfluous. Ah, but it's not. But it's not, my friends, because the Gemara sees in this yet another remarkable step, miraculous step in that direction. The king says, So the Gemara says, What do I need this for? Ah, I'm happy you asked. Says the Gemara, Rabbi Avohu says, in the beginning, Hashverosh had the strange practice of speaking to Esther through an interpreter. When the king would sit with Esther, this is not the way you think of husband and wife, all lovey-dovey sitting together. The king sat all formal, and he would say something, and the interpreter would say, His Royal Highness would like to know A, B, and C. And then Esther would respond to this interpreter. And the interpreter will say, Your Royal Highness, the Queen has said such and such. I know this sounds kind of crazy, but apparently that's how it was. Now, the Ben Yehiyada points out something very important. This was only in front of other people. This was only when, you know, there was pomp and circumstance. Obviously, he didn't bring his interpreter into the bedroom with him to talk to Esther. But in public, he didn't speak to her. Why? Because she was a commoner. And he fancied himself as being royal blood. So maybe she's the queen of Persia, but she's really still a commoner. But Kivan the Omrele, she said to him, I'm a direct descendant of the first Jewish king. He said, Oh. Umiyad, he said, Oh, you are indeed royal blood. So, what, what is this shocking revelation? Like, like what happened here exactly? If you take a look in the Targum on the Megillah, not the Targum Sheni, not the second Targum, but the primary Targum, you find something very interesting here. What happens is that when the queen begins to address her husband, to respond to his question, so, so Esther, so what is it? that you want, and Esther says, well, if I, if I found favor in your eyes. So at this point, Esther starts to speak to Ahasuerush. In the words of the Targum, she says, Gavro Meika, there is a person who brings tremendous pain, source of suffering. He's a person of contention. He actually has designs on the throne. He's trying, he's trying to plan a coup. He wants to wear the royal robes. He wants to ride on the king's horse. Now the king knows, and Esther must have heard the story, 
And she knew her husband. She knew Achashverosh. She figured out. He didn't become this sweet, lovely fellow all of a sudden. So she's playing on his fears. She knew exactly what he was concerned with. So she says, that's what this man wants. That very same thing which the king ordered done for Mordechai, that righteous Mordechai, that's what he wants for himself. And it was only by a stroke of divine intervention that the king was saved. And instead Mordechai, the righteous Mordechai, my father's brother, She's just revealed that she's Jewish. But she revealed, she didn't say, I'm Jewish. She said, that bad man, that horrible individual who wants to overthrow the king, who wanted to wear the king's robes and wear his crown, that instead went on, Mordechai, my paternal uncle. And she said, and began to discuss Mordechai, the son of Yair, who is the son of Shimi. Who is the son of Shmida? Who is the son of Anna? Who is the son of Micha? The son of Mipiboshet? The son of Yehonatan? Eldest son of Shaul, Hamelech, King Saul. So she revealed her secret and also emphasized that she is a granddaughter of royalty. This is a stunning revelation. At the same time that Achashverosh, the anti-Semite, found that his wife is Jewish, he also found out that his beloved wife is actually royal blood with a history. A deep history that stretches back centuries. Imagine that. It's a brilliant revelation and it works exactly what Esther wanted to do. She wanted to reveal both at once. So who says? Like what forces us to say that Esther revealed her nation and her genealogy at the same time? The Sifz Chachamim makes a brilliant observation. And the observation is this. When Ahasuerosh said to her, where are you from? Who is your nation? What is your genealogy? She refused to tell. It says, Ein Esther Magedes, Ama Ve'esmeladta. She doesn't speak about her nation or her genealogy. And she promised to reveal that tonight. So it would make no sense for her to say, I'm a Jew without sharing information of her genealogy. It didn't look like she was trying to Pull one over, Achashverosh, two things he's been asking about ever since he met her. So she reveals them now both at the same time. And it has a very powerful effect. Now, imagine you're Haman. How disoriented would you be now? And zero hour has arrived. This is it. The beauty and the beast. The beast is wounded, stinking, terrified, disoriented. And the beauty points a finger. 
says the Gemara, Vatoi mer Esther, Esther said, Ish, Tsar, Ve'oyev. This person? You asked, who is this person? I'll tell you who this person is. This person, he's a persecutor. That's the word Tsar. He knows how to put the screws on, put the pressure. Crushes people under duress. He's an enemy, an oyev. He is this evil Haman, Haman Harohazeh. A lot of words. Amr Rebbe Lazar says, Melamed, this teaches us. She was pointing a finger at Achashverosh, just like that. And at that point, an angel shows up. The Sotar Yoda Klape Haman. He moves the finger so that instead of pointing at Achashverosh, she's pointing at Haman. What? Where did that come from? So let's start with Rashi. Rashi says, how does that teach us? That she says, Ish tsarvi oyev. The man is a prosecutor. The man is an enemy. He's Haman Arohazeh. How does that tell you she pointed a finger at Hachashverosh? She just identified Haman in multiple words, in many, many, many terms, adjectives. So Rashi says, the thing that begs for a deeper explanation, the thing that, that almost screams something else is going on here is miribuye. There's so many words. Ish, tsar, v'oyev, homon, haro, hazeh. The Bach explains on the words of Rashi, who says miribuye ataloymed. You learn it from the excessive verbiage, ish, tsar, v'oyev, homon, haro, hazeh, says the Bach. She should have said, Haman Araza, this wicked Haman. Why did she have to say, Ish Tsarvi Oyev? The man is a prosecutor. He's an enemy. He's this bad Haman. She said, the king said, Who would do such a thing? And Esther should have said, He, the evil Haman. Why add those words in? And the Bach says, because she wanted to say it you're an ishtsari, a prosecutor, you're an enemy. Why would you want to say that? Now, truth be told, it's actually a little bit more than simply the excessive verbiage here. I mean, that's, that's the way that Rashi and the Bach introduce it. And of, of course, you know, that, that, that is so. That's, that's clear. But, but it goes further. It goes actually past that. So after we look at Rashi and the Bach, it's uh, maybe interesting to take a look at the Or Chodosh, which is a commentary written by the Maharal of Prague. And the Maharal of Prague says, well, you know what? First, let me take it to the Marsha. The Marsha says,
So Rashi says that there was a lot of verbiage over here, but Marsha adds, needed the Iker Drosha Amilas Hazeh. The main word is, what's the Hazeh? Haman or Two people sitting at the table, Zachashverosh and Haman. His name is Haman, so it's the wicked Haman. I'm like, what did it say, Hazeh? He said, the word Hazeh, Shahisa Mechava Biyada Alav. When Hazeh doesn't mean a word, Hazeh means a finger pointing. The Vade Allah Niskavna, it's self understood that she meant Haman. So rather, then we understand that the Hazeh is Klape Achashverosh, that he is the Ishtavi Oyev, that he is the wicked. He is the difficult, the enemy, the adversary, the trouble. So the, the Maharal of Prague says, he says simply, It should have said Ishtzarve Oyev, or Haman Hara, one or the other. And he says, from the fact that there's redundancy here, so this is like more in the image of, of what the Bach says in, in the name of Rashi. However, he's quick to point out that the fact that it says Hazeh, Hazeh is this very one. You know, we have a, an expression in the Torah very early on. When we have the word Zeh, it's something which you can point to the finger at. Zeh keli The children of Israel sang a song of praise after walking through the reed city. He said, this is my God and I shall praise him. And the Gemara says, the children could literally point with a finger. They could point with a finger and say, Zeh, this. The Maharal goes so far as to suggest that the word Hazeh wasn't even said but it was acted out. He says, there was excessive verbiage here. Ish, tsar ve'oyev, But the hazeh was a finger pointing. Of course, this doesn't seem to make any sense whatsoever. Why would Esther do that? She's got her saffron, she's got her stuff together, so to speak. And she makes such an enormous mistake suddenly and needs an angel to save her? Like, what's going on here? Really, how do we understand this? So the Ben Yehiyada addresses this question. He said, why indeed would she do this? And he gives us a phenomenal insight. Esther still wasn't taking chances. She said, I'll get Ahasuerus enraged against me and I'll make sure that the anger he directs towards me, I include Haman in, so in case he's going to forgive Haman, I'll, I'll mix that together with me and we'll both be killed. And she was ready to risk her life. She was ready to, to, to pay with her life to save the Jewish people. Did you know that? even having seen the whole string of success, having betochen for Esther didn't mean, okay, now for sure I'm going to be okay. Hashem is taking care of me. Esther is still ready to make the ultimate sacrifice because failure is not an option. So this is number one, says the Ben Yehuda. Number two, the Ben Yehuda says, that in addition to this idea that she was ready to possibly die if that's what it would take, 
there was another element, another thing that, another idea that she had. She wanted to make it clear to Achashverosh that Haman wants to hurt you. This Ish Tzarviyoyev, he's not my enemy. He's your enemy. She sought to personalize this whole story. She doesn't come as a good Samaritan worried about others. She said, it's all about me. And now, like Mahashah told us, now she wants to put it all about Achashverosh. But here it's possible for misinterpretation. Achashverosh could say, who's pointing fingers at me? You know, this is a maniac who had his wife killed over a whim. So the Malach said, Esther, my beautiful, it's wonderful what you want to do. Point your finger elsewhere. So Esther is ready to make every sacrifice. And she makes the most extraordinary move. And a Malach comes and saves her. Because she had that Messir Nefesh. She deserved to be able to live. Hashem makes a special miracle. Literally, this is the first time we hear of in this showdown, an angelic intervention. Everything else has been orchestrated. Here there's an actual intervention that takes place. The Maharal of Prague in Archodesh says something else fascinating. He says, when Esther was pointing a finger at Achashverosh, because Esther is trying to make a miracle happen. She knows that if she succeeds, it's, an, it's nothing short of a miracle. And if Esther is going to say it's all about Haman, and if she doesn't include Achashverosh, Haya Esther doberet shkorim. She's lying. And it says in the book of Psalms, Psalm 101 verse 7, You can't succeed with lies. She said, if I am to be a vehicle of Hashem's miracles, I have to be able to project. I have to be able to speak with truth, with honesty. Esther, you're going to get hurt. I have a job to do. I have to save the Jewish people. Esther said to herself, you think Achashverosh is going to buy that? I'm going to make believe as if he had nothing to do with this? He was a full partner. says the Maharal. Without Achashverosh, what could Haman have done? Who sold everybody's life to Haman? Achashverosh did. Who gave the fate of the Jewish people into the hands of this genocidal, genocidal maniac? Achashverosh. Maral says the most unbelievable words. Redemption doesn't come through lies. Redemption comes through truth. So Esther has no choice. She points a finger. She's going to say the truth as it is. She said, Haman, wicked, bad, you, pointing a finger, Tsar And in this way, 
The Maharal says, she never said the word. That she actually uttered that word. The word is a euphemism. It indicates the pointing of a finger. Pointing of fingers like saying this. Like I shared with you a few moments ago. I say, just say, Maravet's boy. The children said, This is my God. And here's something amazing. The Rishon Litzion says, It is also quite possible that Esther did it without wanting to. This was a, a tremendous moment, a terrifying moment for Esther. A real zero hour moment of truth. And listen to what he writes. This is almost two and a half centuries ago. Derech bnei Adam, it is the way of people. Kish v'chayshim davar ma'abalim, when they think something in the heart, yechayilum v'pamim la'asis ma'ashachayshim. Sometimes they act out what they were thinking without intending to. Although they're actually terrified to do it or say it, without realizing it, they do it. The Vilna Gaon writes something almost identical. We're talking early 18th century, probably 150 years before Freud articulated it. The Vilna Gaon says, Amru Chachamim, our sages tell us, Koya Chadimyan Oisa Roshim Ba'adam. The power of thought, imagination, makes an impact. Kamoi, Shara'inu Shara'itza Likra Shimon, a person wants to say Shimon, and he says Ruven, because Machashavto, he was thinking about Ruven. You must know, he says, that the most righteous people, when they spoke before a king, they actually were speaking to Hashem. When they said, King, Royal Highness, Master, they meant Hashem. So she's thinking, she's asking a king, Esther's a holy tzaddikist, she's thinking of Hashem now. And because in her mind, she's focused on Hashem, it's like a prayer. Her body acts out what she's really thinking about Ahasuerus. And she points a finger at him. I'm sure you're familiar with this. It's called in, um, the language of psychoanalysis, a Freudian slip. It's also called a parapaxis. An error in speech, memory, or physical action that occurs due to the interference of an unconscious, subdued wish or internal train of thought. Classic examples evolve slips of the tongue, but psychoanalytic theory also embraces misreadings, mishearings, and mistypings. Actions. So Freud first begins to describe things like this in his book, 
the psychopathology of everyday life that he wrote in, or published in 1901. This is easily 150 years after the works of the Rishon Letzion and the Vilna Gaon on the Megillah. Freud himself referred to these slips as Fellheistungon, faulty functions, misperformances, not miswords, misperformances. The Greek term parapaxis is a plural of parapax. Para in Greek means another, and praxis means action. So parapraxis means another action. A Freudian slip is not about something you say, but something you do. How incredible is that? In other words, Freud believed that phenomenon, little slips or mistakes that people make, are symptomatic actions that have meaning and can be interpreted. So at the turn of the 20th century, Freud advances the ideas. Our sages had already written it at least 150 years earlier. I thought that's pretty cool. So now we know what was really going on here. And the way the Vilna Gaon puts it, Esther's this great tzaddikis talking to Hashem, and as such, she's, she's human. She can't possibly control what's about to happen. So at this point, the stage is set. The showdown between the beauty and the beast is complete. We're running out of time. We're running out of time, my friends. So what does the king do? The Malach has just saved Esther's life. She almost made a terrible mistake. And the king gets up in his fury. And he goes out into the garden. And then... The Gemara tells us, after going out into the garden, he's told he comes back from the garden. Ba'melech, come, the king rises. Ah, what's going on here? What's really happening here is the Gemara tells us the Megillah is juxtaposing the going to the coming. Makima b'chema. He went in anger. He returned in anger. The Ozal, the Ashkach, the Malachi, Asharas, he found angels. The Idmuluhu, Kigavre, looked like people. The Koakri, Lilona, the Bustani, they were chopping down the trees in the garden. Amaluhu, Mayav, the Chayu, what is going on over here? Amrulay, the Fakdin, and Haman. Haman told us to. He exploded with anger. There's so much to say here. So for what, what is the Gemara's drosha? What, what, is, what is the issue over here? So the Marsha says, why do we have to say he came back from the garden? Where else was he? He went to the garden, you say, and he came back. Vamelech come, Vamelech shov. He went and he came back. What's the point of saying he went and he came back? In the uh, Rif on the Ein Yankiv, 
He says, it doesn't say, Vayoshov HaMelech, it says, HaMelech, Shov, Shov like come, come and Shov, is a juxtaposition. And the juxtaposition is coming to drive home a point. The point is that he went into the garden to cool off. Why does the Miguel even tell us he went into the garden? According to the Reach Dudoyim, he says the whole thing is irrelevant. Maral of Prague says, this is the miracle. This is the miracle. He went into the garden to cool off. It's the worst thing that could have happened. Now Haman has a chance to plead for his life. He's going to collect his thoughts. Ahasuerus will come back in. His, his temperature will be lowered. His anger will dissipate. And then, maybe he'll realize what Esther's done. Maybe he'll become friendly with Haman again. Ah, but it's not so, because HaKadosh Baruch Hu arranges this all. He goes out into the garden. He sees people chopping that wood with malachim, angels. He says, what are you doing? He said, Haman told us to chop your garden down. Haman told you to chop down my garden. So instead of becoming calmer, instead of kind of collecting himself, he comes back even angrier. And this allowed for the perfect thing to happen. So what happened in the interim when the king was away and had the king been there, it never could have happened. Haman is falling on the bed. The Gemara says, Haman nofal, should have said he fell on Esther's bed. He fell overcome with fear, with terror. No, noifal, noifal. Rashi says, you know what's going on? The Malach came and threw Haman onto her. So Rashi says, he, he keeps trying to pull himself up and he feels himself slammed down. He keeps falling down on her bed. If he wants to get up, the Malach pushes him down again. And the Sefer Matzachain, he says, he says so, so what's like Nafal? Why, why did he fall on the bed to begin with? And he, ex- he, go, he extends Rashi's idea. He says, He wanted to fall before her, to lay on the floor and grovel and beg for his life. And the Malach, when he began to fall, instead of him falling at her feet, pushed Haman on to Esther. Now you got to imagine this. The king comes back from the garden. He's smoke coming out of his ears. He's exploding in anger. What does he see? Haman is trying to and his wife. That man that he's so angry about who's done all these terrible things, he's now trying to fornicate with his wife. Could you have had a more perfect plan? (laughs) Everything Esther planned, in the end, HaKadosh Baruch Hu made infinitely more successful. How does Achashverosh respond? Where does this go from here? Join back next week for that moment. I hope you enjoyed this Gemara class. Thank you for participating. Please continue to come and to learn. If you enjoyed, share, like. And if you or anybody you know hasn't yet, please be so kind as to subscribe youtube.com forward slash Mendel Kaplan. I hope you enjoyed learning the Gemara as much as I did. And again, thank you for your participation. May Hashem help us that we merit to see miracles 
and wonders and deliverance unfold in our days with the coming of Mashiach Bimheira Ubi Amenu Amen. Thank you for joining.